morning. There we go. Good morning, New Life Manitou. Yes. Wow. I don't know what y'all drank or ate this morning, but praise God, y'all are here. You're alive, awake, enthusiastic, excited about Jesus. All I said was good morning, and I got an applause for that. That's amazing. Um, I am Pastor David Martin. Actually, I, I serve normally at New Life North, and so Pastor Joe gave me the honor this morning of opening up this brand new series called Encounters with Jesus. But before we talk about Encounters with Jesus, let's just uh, give the rest of this time so we can continue to encounter what he has already started this morning. So Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I thank you for your truth. We thank you that your spirit is, in fact, alive. Your spirit moves. Your spirit pursues. Your spirit chases us. Your spirit meets us right where we're at. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit is not limited. But, Lord, your power goes to and through the darkest spaces in our minds, our lives, and our hearts. Thank you, God, that you love us in this way. You don't have to love us in this way, but you choose to. So the choice of your love, may that be known today, that you have chosen to love us. You're not obligated to love us. You love us. You pursue us like a good father. You want to provide every need. And so, Father, I pray that whatever you want to say in this moment, in this time, God, to all of us, Lord, that it would be crafted, custom-made for our hearts. And so, Lord, whatever I say, I pray that you would just... Conform it and transform it and empower these words, Lord, so that, Lord, we would just know more of you and the assurance of your love and presence in our lives. God, grant us the spirit of faith, the gift of faith, the gift of joy, peace, life, restoration, and hope this morning. We love you, Lord, and may our only response in this hour just be please and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Today is kind of a special day for me. It's always a special day to come to Manitou, New Life Manitou, and just be able to sit under the worship and, and just be a part of this community. Um, man, Pastor Joe, I'm so proud of you, man, and your leadership and your wife and just all that you do. I think y'all should be clapping at this point for them. That's just my opinion. Um, it's the, the good ones make it look easy. Okay, and let me tell you, this does not come together just because we have amazing volunteers, and you do, but it's because you have a visionary and a leader and someone who's called to this city, and he and his wife, and so the Kirkendalls are a gift to Manitou and a gift to this congregation, so don't you ever forget it, okay? Um, don't make me pull this car over. Um, but today is additionally extra special because our daughter, Ashley, I have the honor of baptizing her at the end of this service, and, and you know, the thing is, is that when I was thinking about baptism. I grew up in a Baptist church, and um, so we're kind of big on that. We had the big baptistry in the back, and you know, I, I, I'm not knocking anybody, but my personal experience, it seemed to be where baptism is one of two things many times. It's either overemphasized or underemphasized. And so on the underemphasis, it's more of a sentimental ritual that, oh, of course, you know, my, we, we baptize our dad, and that's good. Please don't mishear me. But I think sometimes we can really just kind of reduce it down to something that is almost common and where there is no power in what it is that baptism is. But then on the other side, we can overemphasize, overemphasize it to where we say that the only, when you step into baptism, like there's this 
this convergence, this collision where your sins are forgiven. They're left in the water and the water cleanses you and you come out of the water and we place an overemphasis on baptism. And, and maybe I'm polarizing the room a little bit here, but really when I look at scripture, what I see is that it is a public declaration. It is a public profession of your faith saying, I am now letting the world know that I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I am a committed follower of him into believer's baptism. That means you must believe before you're baptized. And so with that said, I share all that with you because as a pastor, you would think it would be super easy for me and, her, and um, our daughter's mom, Sarah, to be able to explain to Ashley and just lead her naturally into believer's baptism. But we've been raising a kid that holds her spiritual cards very close to her heart. And so we've Man, as parents, we don't have it all figured out. We're right along with you for those of you raising kids. And we just had to, I just, year after year, we just have to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in our daughter's life and not shove it down her throat or go, hey, honey, I'm a pastor. You know, can you kind of pick up the pace with your spiritual walk so we can get you baptized so I don't look bad, right? None of those types of things. This is, and so we're driving to the church this morning. I was like, baby, you're getting baptized. And I was like, I just want to make sure you understand what's happening here, you know? And she's like, I, I get it, dad. I understand. I was like, well, I would just want to, you to understand that this is your decision. It's not mine. I can't force you into anything. You have to own your own relationship with Jesus. And so I'm proud of you that you've made this decision for yourself to be baptized. And I affirm, just confirmed once again, now, when did you receive Christ? You know, she's like, I was six. I was just like, Dad, okay. Dad, can we stop by Starbucks so I can get a... Okay, great. So that was the moment, right? <laughs> Baptism. And so... We're going to be talking this morning and opening up the series about encounter because baptism absolutely is an encounter um, for many, and the witnesses and the person being baptized. But the definition of an encounter is this. Encounter means to come upon face to face. And so when it comes to encounters with God, as I was thinking about this and, and just having so much fun writing this sermon, the entire Bible really can be summed up where God, in a multitude of ways, encounters mankind and then mankind's response, good or bad, to the encounter they've had with God. You've heard some preachers say that, oh, when you have an encounter with Jesus, you leave and you're never the same again. And I go, I like the way that sounds, but that's not actually true. Because you can absolutely, you see in scripture where people do in fact encounter Jesus and they turn around and walk away the exact same way before they encounter Christ. So encounter is actually an opportunity. It's this moment in which we can enter into that encounter or we can withhold and turn around and actually deny that encounter. And we see this with mankind from the very beginning of time. God presenting himself face to face through miracles, through signs and wonders and is himself personally and people making a choice. Do I want to encounter further what is happening here or do I want to harden my heart against what is happening? And that's really the whole story of the Bible is God coming down, God presenting himself to us and us responding good or bad to the encounter. And one of my favorite stories of encounter, and I, and I wish I could preach this, man, maybe next year we could do a series on Exodus because I love the story of Exodus. If you're not familiar with it, basically what you find is you find that God's people, these Hebrews, they're under slavery for over 400 years. 400 years, generation after generation, no hope under this terrible oppression, under this Pharaoh, just backbreaking work, fear, hopelessness. And it seemed that having any hope for these people in their hearts, 
in the quieter moments of their lives, any hope of an encounter with God or a new way of life was impossible to have an encounter with God. Some, I'm sure many of them actually felt that there would never be another encounter with God. And it felt like God for those 400 years was silent under this oppression. When, when, when can we be saved and liberated? But God raises up a voice, right? In this story, we see that God raises up a voice, a leader named Moses, to point the way and be able to lead the charge for liberation and life for these people. And so ultimately Moses is sent. He's the one designated by God to point the way for the Israelites to encounter God. And so if you read in scripture, Moses leads these Hebrew slaves to a place. And this place is a place of exchange. And these Hebrews now exchange their status as slaves and they exchange their status for a new identity as liberated sons and daughters of God. That's the story. And so with this picture in your mind, then fast forward to where there's this gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible. And, and for Israel, there's actually another 400-year gap that they've been experiencing where they're really not encountering God. Again. And this 400 years is not 400 years of slavery, but it's 400 years of silence where God is not speaking there's very little encounter with God, according to Scripture, not because God doesn't love to talk. God loves to speak. He's speaking all the time. But when we allow to ourselves to have a relationship with Christ, or with God in this case, with God, and then bring back sin and the culture's way of living and choosing to live, what happens is, is over time, when we bring this stuff back into our homes, into our relationships, and into our lives, our ears over time become deaf to the voice of God. And we begin to listen to other voices and they're louder. And we go, we're not hearing from God. It's because we've been listening to other voices besides his and our ears are no longer tuned to the voice of God. And that's kind of what's taking place here. So 400 years of silence. And then God, just like he did with Moses, he raises up another voice to speak on God's behalf. And this voice is interesting because 700 years before this voice ever spoke for the first time, this prophet Isaiah actually talks about this particular voice. And this is how he's described. He says, listen, it is the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. 700 years, pushing a thousand years before this voice shows up. But here we are, this voice to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament and to be able to break the silence of 400 years of the this, of this status. And so the prophet Isaiah is talking about this guy named John the Baptist. And like Moses, John the Baptist wasn't meant to be the encounter. He was simply raised up to point the way to the encounter. And so we find John the Baptist preaching, and, and he's preaching powerfully. He's out in the desert, and people are going out into the wilderness to, to listen to what this man has to say. And he didn't grow up in the religious systems. He was actually segregated from that. He took the Nazarite vow. So he's just this funky, crazy, weird dude, okay? And, and he's, but he's got this message that people are drawn to. 
And what he's really preaching is repent, be baptized, and that the world's encounter with Jesus is imminent. And this is where we find this new voice, breaking the silence after 400 years. It says, during those days, everyone was gripped with messianic expectations. So there was this eagerness to see Jesus show up, this Messiah show up, believing that the Messiah could come at any moment. And many began to wonder if John might, in fact, be the Christ. But John made it clear by telling them, he said, no, 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 no. He said, there is one coming who is way mightier than I am. He is supreme. In fact, he says, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals or be his slave. I can only baptize you in the river, but he will baptize you in the spirit of holiness and into his raging fire. What? We listen to this, we go, mm-hmm, that's a good word, Pastor Dave. That's right. What are you talking about? Baptized into raging fire. There is something else taking place here besides water baptism. There is a supernatural inter- intervention with the soul in which our hearts are refined by the baptism of fire, the purity and the holiness of Jesus Christ and his spirit coming, encountering us in this moment of repentance in which we are refined and changed forever. And John the Baptist is the one saying, he's coming and he's on his way. And so John the Baptist, this radical character, is preparing the way. And one of the things that he was doing he is what he was, obviously, in fact, baptizing people in water. And this was an outward sign of repentance. Now, repentance is a churchy word. Certainly, it's not one of the most favorite words probably here in Manitou. Because we go repent, we immediately think of those signs, turn or burn, repent, and be, you know, be saved or microwaved, and all the rest of these weird signs. <laughs> Here's the thing, repent is simply a term where if I'm going this direction, I've changed my mind and my decision is to go now this way. That's what repent means, that's it. There's nothing more to it than that. And so people are listening to John the Baptist's message and they're beginning to repent and be baptized. They're turning away the direction of the rebellion against God back to him. That's it. And baptism, I just, just so you understand, it's not, it wasn't a new concept in John the Baptist's time. As a matter of fact, when we think of baptism, we talk about identifying ourselves with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and we should. But baptism did not begin with Christians. As a matter of fact, for years before Christ ever showed up, the Jews had used baptism in this ritual cleansing ceremony. So if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism they would be baptized because they were repenting of their sins and being aligned with the teachings and the tenets of Judaism. But John the Baptist took baptism to a whole nother level, and he was saying, listen, it's not just Gentiles that need cleansing. As a matter of fact, it's all you rotten Jews as well. That's basically what he's saying. You're sinners just like anybody else. Just because you have a bloodline that is, looks better on paper, the fact is, is that we're all separated from God, and there isn't enough tradition in your background that can save you just because your grandmother liked God. He's saying you have to come yourself and you cannot rely upon your pedigree to save you. Just as it was and is with my daughter. Just because her dad's a pastor and her mom's a worship leader and her big brother's a worship leader. No, that has no bearing on her spiritual standing with the Lord. All we can do is point to the encounter. And my daughter has to make her own decision regardless of how you're raised. Raised in a pagan household, raised in a Christian household, raised in Billy Graham's household. It's your decision. And so the, the Jews, this is like a foreign teaching. And so they're recognizing their sin and something's responding in them going, oh my gosh, that's true. I am a Jew and I, I still am a sinner and if, I need to repent, right? And so the commitment to follow God's law 
was simply an anticipation of the Messiah's arrival. And so all these people are believing in this, and they're following John's words. And up to this point, we're talking about a Messiah, but no one knows who he is. Jesus is this obscure character growing up. While John the Baptist's ministry is growing and flourishing, talking about this person, no one knows who Jesus is, including John the Baptist. If you look at scripture, he's like, I wasn't sure I knew who he was until I saw a couple of things take place to confirm this. Jesus was the son of God. And if you study his ministry, it really wasn't until the moment that he was baptized that his ministry became public. Up to this point, he lived a very, very private life. He's just known at Mary, Joseph's son, the carpenter. And that's all he was known by, by very few people. And so most people didn't even know who he was. And so, but then there's this moment of baptism. And it seems that this moment of baptism is really the, the line in which he goes from being very private and personal to his public ministry being launched. He goes from being this carpenter to the one who claims to be the son of God. And so here's where we find ourselves. John the Baptist and Jesus have now crossed paths and now they're face to face. The one pointing the way is now standing in front of the way. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. If I'm John, I would do the exact same thing. I'd be like, really? I, I, I mean, no, no, I can't do that. You should be baptizing me. And that's what, try talking him out of it. He says, listen, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. And after his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water. And don't miss this. This is so powerful. This is huge. The heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said this, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. No one else got that except this man named Jesus who has now entered into baptism and has come up out of the water and all of a sudden, there's a couple things that happens. In this moment, Jesus, his identity is affirmed by the Father. Guys, I'm telling you right now, almost all of us are searching for affirmation from the Father. And if we truly believed what God said about us, our pursuits of wealth and status and prominence and power and position and all these types of things would literally melt away because all that we've ever been looking for is in this statement from God. I approve of you. You have all you need. You lack nothing. You're my son. You're my daughter. And in this moment, even Jesus needs his identity affirmed by the Father. Isn't that beautiful? So in this moment, he's affirmed, but also Jesus goes from private to public, no longer, is, no longer known as Mary and Joseph's son, the carpenter, but the one who is the son of God. And from that moment on, this is what John the Baptist began to say. He must increase now it's time for me to decrease. And that should be our response when we encounter Jesus and say yes to him. And we really do see that there's proof that he is the son of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. We go, okay, well then you're the one in charge. I must decrease. You must increase in my life, Jesus. In the way I live my life, the way I love people, the way that I choose to follow you. you it's got to be more about you than it is me. And so, so much like the foreshadowing that we see in this, the story of Exodus, 
Jesus has now set out to liberate mankind from the slavery of sin, where all mankind who are suffering under this crushing weight of the law that we can't keep, we're lawbreakers, even on our best day, through the death of Jesus on the cross, in this moment what took place is he purchased our freedom. And it was at the cross that Jesus fulfilled his purpose for coming to the earth. And scripture says, yet, everybody say yet. Oh, this is such a good, because what happens after this yet is ridiculous. And this is for us. Christ paid the full price to set us free from the curse of the law. So if you've been trying to serve under the law, you've been trying to be the perfect Christian, the perfect person, you're trying to do all the right things, keep all these spiritual plates spinning in order for God to love you. In this moment, you've been liberated from that. You don't have to spin another plate. Let them all crash. Because Christ has gone around. He has circumvented that. He says, I will be the one who obeys the law on your behalf. I will live a perfect and sinless life so that all of your debt, all of the requirements of the law aren't forgotten or disrespected, but they're fulfilled. And he did that for you and for me. And so he paid the full price. And he, what he did is he absorbed it completely. The curse of the law, he absorbed it. And he became a curse in our place. Should have been us. He took it instead. For it is written, everyone who is hung upon a tree is doubly cursed. This is a picture of the crucifixion. Jesus, our Messiah, was cursed in our place. And in so doing, what he did in this moment is he dissolved the curse from our lives so that all of the blessings of Abraham can be poured out even on non-Jewish believers. So this isn't just for Jews. It's for Jews and Gentiles now. And now God gives us the promise of the wonderful Holy Spirit who lives within us when we believe in him. This is the moment. This is the moment of encounter where we have a choice. Do I believe in this or do I still rely upon my own thoughts and opinions about what it means to know God and experience him? This is the choice. I want to believe in him. If this is what I get, I'm in. Because I know that I'm not perfect. I, am, I'm, I have nothing to offer this world except what Jesus has done in me and through me. And so here's what happens. This is called the completed work of Christ. Completed. There's nothing left to be done. Nothing that you can do. Nothing that he needs to be done. It is finished, right? So the Holy Spirit from that point has now been on this relentless pursuit of mankind regardless of where they're at and what they're involved with or what they've done to open the eyes of those who are in slavery to sin and addiction and brokenness and loss and pain and bringing sight to the blind and freedom for the captives to where those who have nothing but ashes, Scripture says, can bring it to God and you exchange that for a crown of beauty and salvation. This is what was prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah 61. For those who have put their faith in the completed work of Christ, those who understand that they bring nothing to the table but their sin, it's those who turn and repent from their sin and place their trust in the completed work of Jesus, something happens. What is that thing? I would tell, I put it to you this way. When a soul encounters Jesus, like yours may it be in this very moment, and puts their faith in them, there is an exodus moment for each of us. Each and every one of us now have this exodus moment, this opportunity in front of us where what we once were, our status as slaves, orphans, 
Condemned is now exchanged for new identities as liberated sons and daughters of God. You see, as we pass from slavery through the waters of the Red Sea, we're able to go over to the other side to the promise of God. So, if that doesn't fire you up, then I guess you have no soul. Uh, with that said, for those who do have a soul, um, fast forward. I, I had to light it up a little bit, man. Isn't that good news? Like, oh my gosh, right? Like, we have no other reason to sing this morning except for this truth. It's so good, man. So fast forward three years from Jesus' baptism and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. There's this moment where he's completed everything that he came and was sent to do. And the time has come where his public ministry is now going to be passed on like a baton to his disciples. And he's saying, listen, as a sh child of God, you can never ease back into a life of faith that is private. That's what he's basically telling them. He's saying, listen, your life and all who become my followers must be just as public about what I, what I have in the way that I've done it. Let me back up. Must be just as public as I've been in public. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus did not hide this, did he? We don't see in scripture where he's shrinking back because it's not politically correct or he, you know, he's afraid he's going to get a, a question that he doesn't know the answer to. You know what I mean? Jesus isn't worried about any of that. He's led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was the one to guide him and give him the words and the understanding and the power to heal and to save and to raise from the dead. And so this is what he tells these guys. He's like, listen, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, everybody say therefore. therefore. Yeah. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you and be sure of this. He says, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Jesus goes on to say in Acts, though, he says, you see, John baptized with water. But in a few days, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, through Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That, to me, does not sound like a private ministry, a personal faith. Y'all know what I'm talking about. See, we, oh, it's a personal faith. I, I keep my faith very personal and private. It's just my thing between my God. You can, no, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Go back and just, mm, so I got my faith. I come on Sunday. I give a little bit. I probably sing a little bit and I go home and I, and I, no, no, no. Public faith. Public faith. Not ashamed. Not putting a, a, a bucket over the light that is in you. Public declaration, profession of our faith day in, day out, to the ends of the world. Once you have reached the end of the world and you've shared your faith with everybody between this point and the end of the world, then maybe talk to God and see if there's a, some sort of clause in which you've fulfilled it all. But until then, we have to be public about our faith. A couple of things I, that, that, I point, that I want to point out to you really quickly before we wrap up is we're called to be witnesses. Second, if we are to follow Jesus, we have to make disciples and baptize them. You see, the truth about baptism starts with the fact that we are literally following in the steps of Jesus. First off, Jesus was the trendsetter here, and millions of others, or billions at this point, from the point that Jesus is baptized up until now, 
we step into a rich heritage and a history of those who also have saying, I have chosen to put Jesus first in my life. I am putting all of my chips on what he has said about me. He said he has forgiven me. He's restored me. He's taken me from death into life. And so because of that, I will follow him and I will be unashamed of him for the rest of my life. Believer's baptism is not a private event. It always requires witnesses. Why? Because it's public. And Jesus says, be baptized. So there's something powerful about that. I was reminded of this one thing where there's been times throughout our, our history as Christians where people would receive Christ, believe in him, believe in this message you've heard this morning, go into baptism knowing that the moment that they come out of those waters, they're going to be martyred and killed. That's a statement of faith, my friends. So for us to reduce it and minimize it and say, oh, I got dunked on Sunday. No, no, no. You're talking about something very sacred. At the same time, we can overemphasize it as well. The middle is saying this. Our decision to trust Jesus is personal. Absolutely. But our obedience to follow him should always be public. Always be public. The way that I describe this really quickly is I, around this time of year, uh, October is when Sarah and I started dating 24 years ago. Oh my gosh. So 24 years ago, we're, Sarah and I were working together and there's some chemistry at this job that we we're working and we decided to start dating, okay? The thing is, is our boss was very clear to both of us specifically. She's like, I do not want you to date David and David, I do not want you to date Sarah, okay? And so she was very clear and so we broke that rule right off the bat and so we started dating. And so our relationship was very, very private, meaning that no one knew that we were dating. But new hires would see us interacting with one another, and they would go, there's a bond between those two. And so they thought that we were brother and sister, which is weird, <laughs> but they couldn't figure it out. They knew that there was a connection there. And so for eight months, we kept this relationship under wraps, like hardcore, because we didn't want to lose our jobs. And I got to tell you, in some sort of weird way, it actually, I think, it made it better because it was like, ooh, it's naughty. Like, you shouldn't be dating, you know? <laughs> but... There's this moment in the following spring. <laughs> Golly, Joe, I'm sorry. So, okay, here's where we're going. Okay, I have like four minutes left. And I'll, all right, so check this out. Here's, here, you're like, what does it have to do with baptism? Hang tight. Personal relationship. Okay, that's the point. But then there was this moment where I was like, you know what? I'm going to ask this woman to marry me. And I wish I could tell you this is before Pinterest. And so it's not like I did this on, the, on a beach in Malibu with like dolphins with, you know, signs in their blowholes spelling out, will you marry me? It was none of that. No photographers. I just proposed to Sarah over chips and salsa at a Mexican restaurant. Okay. Yes. And the air just got sucked out of the room. All the women are like, oh, you're a loser. Um, I didn't even have a ring. So my, father, my grandfather's wedding ring I wear, and I've been wearing it since I was a teenager, since he passed, and so I'm like inspired in this moment to ask her to marry me, so I'm like fighting to get this ring off my fat little finger, because it's been years since I've taken it off, finally get it off, and I present it to her and ask her to marry me, she says, spoiler alert, she said yes, and then from that moment though, I was like, okay, no more secrets, we're going to go to our boss, and I don't care what happens, I'm going to marry you right? So we go to our boss, we tell her, she doesn't fire us. And so that was our first step into becoming public. And while people begin to find out that we were together and that we weren't in fact brother and sister, and they were able to kind of fill in some blanks, 
There was this moment, though, that really made it official. Our wedding day. And we stood at the altar, and it was official, and there were witnesses, and we were standing up there, and we were exchanging promises to one another. And there's this moment in which the, ra- the rings are exchanged. Now, here's the thing. If so, whoever was responsible for the rings lost the rings, flushed them down the toilet, pawned them, whatever they would have done, we still would have been married that day. Is that not right? Because there's this moment where it's beyond just the symbol of our promise. There is a covenant that we're making with God in the eyes of the great state of Texas and our family. They're all witnesses saying, this is different. This is the moment in which you have come up as two separate people, Sarah Hoover, David Martin, and you will now walk down off of that altar as Mr. and Mrs. Martin. We become one in this moment. We didn't need rings to make that happen, but these service symbols, so it is with baptism. Baptism not only reminds us as witnesses of what God has done for us, but this ring serves as a reminder moving forward for me, and baptism, for the, all, all of us who have entered into believer's baptism, this is, this is a sign of a promise, a covenant that I've made with God to be devoted to him for better or for worse, right? Beyond death. And so I share that with you because I really do feel that that's a great equalizer of understanding what baptism is. And so I'm going to close with these passages of scripture. As always, I always preach. I have more sermon than I got time to preach. But can I just share with you a couple, just a couple more nuggets of really good news that you need to hang on to before you get out of here? You see, what Jesus did on the cross for us is so significant. All of the guilt, Scripture says, all of the guilt and power of sin has been cut away and is now extinct because of Christ, the anointed one. He has accomplished this for us. For we have been buried with him in his death. Our baptism into death also means that we were raised with him when we believed in God's resurrection power, the power that raised him from death's realm. This is not figurative. This is literal of what's taking place in your spirit when you repent and put your faith in the completed work of Jesus. This realm of death, scripture says, describes our former state for we held where we were held in sin's grasp, slavery. But now we've been resurrected out of that realm of death, never to return for we are forever alive and forgiven of all of our sins. In this moment, yes, yes, it's a celebration. Okay, let me put it this way. For it's Christ's love that fuels our passion and motivates us because we were absolutely convinced that Jesus has given his life for all of us. This means we have all died with him. And when this happens, we learn that if anyone is enfolded into Christ, He has become an entirely new person. She has become an entirely new person. All that is related to the old order has now, poof, vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and everything is new. With that said, I had one more big passage of scripture. Just read Romans 6 and Romans 8 on your own and get your world rocked by the word of God. But I think you've heard enough today to understand The baptism isn't some cute thing that we just do and go, oh, it's so sweet. No, it's a heritage. And there is an encounter in this moment. It's a sacred moment, just as it is with the table. As a band comes up and we prepare to go to the table, these are things that serve as reminders, but they are opportunities and avenues for encounter with God. 
And so maybe you're sitting here and you're like, you know, I, I thought by showing up here this morning because the weather's nice outside and, and I just wanted to get some religion. Maybe you came in here and went, man, I just want a little pep talk. But today you realize that there's something missing. You don't know if you've actually repented and put your faith in what I just described Jesus has done for you. He wasn't just a religious figure. He's someone that has pursued you and aligned your steps to the point to where he's put you in this chair to hear this message of his love. I would encourage you not to walk out of this room until you have repented and given your life to Jesus and then enter into believer's baptism as a public profession of your faith. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that the convicting power of your son and by your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth of who you are, Lord, would be made known in this moment. And so as you sit here, I'm gonna ask you just to simply pray to God right now. It's this simple. Just pray, dear Jesus, I want to be saved. I want to exchange my status as slave to sin. And I wanna become a son or a daughter of Christ. I believe that you died. I believe that you were buried. And I believe you rose again. And that all the requirements that I could never meet were met in you, Jesus. So I put my faith in you today. I ask you to save me, rescue me, restore me. And may I publicly follow you the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. And scripture says that when someone prays this from the sincerity of their heart, there's nothing magical about the prayer. It's the sincerity of your heart. The Lord says yes to all of us, even the most lost. Today is the day you've been found. So I want to congratulate you for this decision. Pastor Joe.